opinions expressed on ACB Radio are those of the respective program contributors and cannot be assumed to serve as endorsements of products or views of the American Council of the Blind, its elected officials, or its staff. Good evening or good afternoon, everyone. My name is Chris Bell, and I am delighted and privileged to be your facilitator tonight for a discussion regarding accessible pedestrian signals, why they are extremely important for us as blind pedestrians, and for some reasons we may not be aware of, uh, how we can go about getting them in terms of our advocacy, and finally, how we can use the Americans with Disabilities Act to litigate a right to accessible pedestrian signals in our town or city. Unfortunately, right now, we do not have a right to accessible pedestrian signals. It's not in the law or regulations under the Americans with Disabilities Act or under Section 504 of the Rehabilitation Act, nor under any rule under the, uh, the Federal Highway Administration. But the people that we're going to hear from tonight have been directly involved in creating such a right through ADA litigation. And it is my privilege to uh, in, uh, involve them this evening. The first person is Janet Barlow. She is a certified orientation and mobility specialist. And she has been conducting research into O&M issues, focusing on access to the built environment and in the interaction of the O&M field with transportation engineers. She was also heavily involved in research that created standards for accessible pedestrian signals. Ori Scharf has worked on advocacy relating to accessible pedestrian signals since the 1990s in both Nassau County and New York City. Lori currently is working on her master's degree in teaching rehabilitation and she now lives in Virginia. Tori Atkinson is a staff attorney with the Disability Rights Advocates, a nationwide disability rights organization that seeks to provide rights through impactful litigation. Tori is the lead attorney on the ACB of New York versus New York City case, seeking to establish and actually has established a right to accessible pedestrian signals in that city. Let's start with Janet. Janet, let's first start with a brief description of what an accessible pedestrian signal is and what it does. Well, an accessible pedestrian signal basically provides the information uh, in an audible and vibrotactile um, manner um, that is being provided on, by the visual pedestrian signal for sighted pedestrians. Accessible pedestrian signals as standardized in the US include um, a tactile arrow that's oriented in the direction of travel, a um, push button locator tone so you can find the push button and um, the audible and vibrotactile walk indications. 
as well as um, there's some specifications about where they should be located in relationship to the crosswalk. The other feature is that they respond to ambient sound. So they're louder when traffic's louder and quieter when traffic's quieter. But basically they provide the information that's being provided to sighted pedestrians uh, in a format that's uh, accessible to those who are blind, who have low vision, who are deafblind. Uh, so that they also know when the traffic engineer intended for them to walk across the street and provided enough time for someone to walk across the street. So let's break that down. A blind pedestrian seeks to cross a street. Um, what are the things that that pedestrian has to do in order to cross that street safely? Well, as I'm sure many of you know, first you got to locate the proper place to begin your crossing. Where did they locate the crosswalk for this street? Um, align to make that crossing, um, hopefully parallel to the traffic moving beside you, but not always. And certainly with some of the new designs, uh, less commonly true. Um, decide when to begin crossing begin crossing or finish your crossing and maintain that alignment or heading, uh, hopefully within the crosswalk uh, to the other side of the street. So those various tasks are um, part of what has to be done in um, deciding to cross the street. And um, some of the features of the APS help with that. The um, locator tone helps people find the um, push button if there's a push button that's required, but also help uh, if they're located as they're supposed to be located, also help locating the crosswalk. And uh, the tactile arrow can help with alignment. Uh, it's difficult to use properly, but can be helpful in aligning to cross. The um, walk indication, of course, provides information about when to start that crossing. Still have to listen to traffic and pay attention to other things going on, but um, at least tells you, okay, now's the time the traffic engineer intended for pedestrians to walk. And the push button locator tone may help in um, completing the crossing at the location, correct location. The locator tone is not supposed to generally be uh, heard more than uh, 10 to 12 feet away from the push button, but there are some features that you can use to increase the sound of it to help with uh, um, orientation and crossing the street, or sometimes just that, you know, 10 to 12 feet is enough to hear it and know, oh, this is where I need to be heading and maybe correct a little bit of alignment near the end of the street crossing. So usually across the street where somebody is heading, there is another accessible pedestrian signal, right? That's correct. So but no can... longer are accessible pedestrian signals intended to be heard all the way across the street in most situations. Um, some people think that they're supposed to hear them from the other side of the street. And we found in research that basically um, it was hard to, figure out where you were going um, and that that sound masked the sound of traffic and sometimes um, disoriented uh, individuals and that really need to pay attention to other things in crossing the street in general. So what does your research show uh, is the difference between when a blind person does not have an accessible pedestrian signal, that is to say they 
there's only a visual pedestrian signal versus when there is one. What's the difference in terms of alignment and uh, staying within the crosswalk and crossing the street on time, et cetera? want to go into each detail of that at this point and actually don't have that information in front of me but generally um, what we found in the research was that people started crossing late after the walk indication uh, more than 50 percent of the time and didn't complete their crossing before the traffic on the perpendicular street um, received a green um, almost 25 percent of the time in uh, situations that we were researching there, which were complex, pretty wide intersections, but still um, pretty typical of what individuals who are blind have to um, deal with in getting to the bus stop and stuff like that. There were um, improvements in finding the button, using the button, um, and it is critical. Many people who are blind and even many orientation mobility specialists don't understand it is critical if they've installed a pedestrian push button that you use that pedestrian push button if you don't use the push button and there's maybe only two cars crossing the street there's not enough time for the pedestrian to cross the street you have to use the push button in order to get enough enough green time or enough walk time for the pedestrian to actually complete the crossing. So it's really critical to use these pedestrian push buttons. And of course, then you got to find them. So it's important to have the push button locator tones and also to be very um, um, advocate strongly for the push buttons to be located um, close to the crosswalk and in the locations that are now specified as um, recommended but not required and uh, makes a big difference if they're located close to where you want to start crossing from. It helps. Well, I can see as somebody that has crossed many streets in my years as a blind person that not having an accessible pedestrian signal has put me at much greater risk from what you are saying. Um, in your experience, uh, uh, in working with tra traffic engineers and in assessing uh, accessible pedestrian signals, um, are they sometimes not installed correctly? They're commonly not installed correctly at this point, partly because um, the standards, well, the standards have been in place for t over 10 years now, but there's still a lack of understanding Sometimes there's a lack of understanding from the individuals who are blind about how they're supposed to work and what they're supposed to do as well. Um, and certainly an area where we can and should be advocating for them to look at the standards and to use the standards and to adhere to them and not to start deviating because they like to do something else instead. And that's kind of happened in a couple of cities that some blind pedestrians even have said, oh, well, I'd like it to, you know, have a different message. And we, we, we decided on those research. The messages based on research and what was understood by individuals. So 
it's um, important to look at the standards and to use the standards that are out there. Um, and to, because many are not familiar with them or are only slightly familiar with them. So it's important for us to be advocates who understand what we're asking for and uh, help them understand how important accessible pedestrian signals can be for individuals who are blind or who have low vision in making sure they cross at the right time. They're coming up with all kinds of interesting timing schemes for pedestrian signals so that traffic, uh, the walk indication or the time for pedestrians is now not always at the time that our near lane parallel traffic is moving. And sometimes they're doing that as a, considering it an advantage for pedestrians, but without the pedest accessible pedestrian signal, blind people are being put at greater risk by some of those strategies because they're crossing at the time when vehicles and drivers are not expecting them. So you're talking, I think, about uh, what's called leading pedestrian intervals and exclusive pedestrian phases. That's two of the options. Um, also, many of the intersections um, out there have are actuated and may have a protected left turn. And um, if you're just crossing with the traffic moving beside you, you may be crossing when the traffic has a green arrow and pedestrians are not given a walk indication. Uh, you have to be sure which traffic you're moving with. Uh, so there's that difficulty. The leading pedestrian interval and um, exclusive pedestrian phase are even more uh, interesting because basically the leading pedestrian interval is intended to provide a um, head start for pedestrians to get into the crosswalk so that they don't have to kind of uh, conflict or fight with right turning cars that may be turning across the crosswalk. But the fact of the matter is for a blind person, they're listening, waiting for the traffic to start moving. Uh, they start to step out just as the traffic starts to make those right turns and thinks that all the pedestrians are already kind of started across the street and out of their way. So it uh, um, puts them in a very dangerous and unexpected um, movement and location. Uh, and, and that's uh, the part I'm particularly concerned about with lead pedestrian intervals. Um, exclusive pedestrian phases provide a time for the pedestrians when no traffic is moving, but deciding when that is, aligning and maintaining alignment during those phases is, uh, well, it's difficult. It takes away your cues that you use without an APS. So uh, I know you've been involved in the New York City litigation that we're going to hear more about in a little bit. In New York City, uh, how common are the leading pedestrian intervals and inclusive pedestrian phases in terms of uh, where there is a visual pedestrian signal? They're becoming much more common. Um, I believe in the last several years, New York has installed something like 4,000 lead pedestrian intervals. And um, I can't remember the number on exclusive pedestrian phases, but they're trying to you know, improve the environment for pedestrians, but uh, not installing the APS means they're 
um, putting pedestrians who are blind at greater risk. And many people who are elderly can't see the cross, those crossing signals across a four-lane road. So they may not identify themselves as blind, but they may also be missing those visual cues that help make the crossing safer. And I suppose it's also true that uh, there are many of us who are visually impaired who also have some degree of hearing impairment. That is true. And the uh, vibrotactile indication on the accessible pedestrian signal can help uh, with that. The uh, arrow is supposed to vibrate when the walk begins so that you can have your hand on the push button and know that the walk has begun and uh, get crossing at the same time that uh, the traffic engineer intended you to begin the crossing. Well, it would, it would seem just as a matter of common sense, but of course, uh, things that are of common sense often are not, that one could explain this fairly simply to a traffic engineer of, about how uh, blind people need some way of understanding what the signal is visually uh, telling sighted pedestrians. What, what's your experience, since I know you've talked to a lot of traffic engineers, what's your experience on sort of how they look at it? It varies greatly. Um, many traffic engineers um, most really want to do a good job and want to, um, you know, want to make sure people are safe. Um, the biggest problem with things like the LPI and the e exclusive pedestrian phases is that um, it's a software change. I mean, they can basically go out there and flip a switch and change the timing. And actually, sometimes they can do it from a, a traffic management center downtown um, and change the timing on the light. And actually, they can do that at actuated signals in many cities any time of the day or night that the timing can change. So you think you maybe have it all figured out and it changes. Um, and so installing the accessible pedestrian signal and getting the um, pole in the right place, the locator tone, all the details of it um, can be something that's a little daunting to some of the traffic engineers. They're not experienced with it. And it also is, is a cost issue um, that, uh, you know, you can send your traffic signal tech out there and switch, add LPIs to the whole intersection in maybe an hour or less while installing the accessible pedestrian signals uh, may require construction, moving of poles, moving of wiring. Of course, the APS devices, it's a, a, a can be an expensive proposition and one that they don't understand well um, and aren't budgeting for under the current requirements or lack of requirements for APS to install, be installed at these types of locations. Um, obviously, in my opinion, they should be budgeting for that. It should be part of what they do. There are simpler ways to do it than sometimes some engineers anticipate. Um, but it is a, um, the installation and the potential for construction that may be required um, is somewhat of a barrier um, that is not well understood and kind of surprises many traffic engineers 
after they start, you know, installing these special timing plans. Makes me wonder whether uh, accessible pedestrian signals are taught in traffic engineering school. I have no idea, <laughs> but uh, I would say would, no. Yeah, that would be my guess too. Well, um, but there's also, I mean, it's Im probably important to recognize that many cities don't actually employ a traffic engineer. Um, the engineers that are used are civil engineers, so they have a very broad um, experience of, you know, dealing with stormwater and drainage and traffic and all kinds, you know, construction, making bridges. So it varies. And also many cities just are contracting for their engineering services. So um, they may not have someone on staff who really understands these kinds of uh, uh, features. Obviously, that's not true in the biggest cities, but in smaller cities, often it is a contracted service and you may be dealing with different contractors and different people and the city council and city staff may be doing the same thing and getting kind of mixed information at times. Oh, sounds, sounds somewhat complicated. And of course we didn't say, but uh, it is certainly true that in most places there are no accessible pedestrian signals or if they exist in particular cities or towns, there aren't all that many of them as compared to visual pedestrian signals. That's correct. A lot depends on the advocacy of the people who live in the town and can depend on the um, traffic engineer and their knowledge and you know what you've taught them as a advocate about um, putting in facilities that meet your needs as well. Well, that is a wonderful segue for Lori Scharf. It is. Our representative, uh, local advocate. Welcome, Lori. Thank um, you, Chris. Tell me the story of the advocacy efforts that you and others in the ACB of New York uh, made to get accessible pedestrian signals installed. Well, uh, it, particularly in New York City, um, under the presidency of Pratik Patel, um, ACB of New York began by developing a coalition, which is the uh, PASS coalition. Um, what does PASS stand for? It, it stand, uh, Pedestrians for Accessible and Safe Streets. And um, that has a, a group of people who are blind and visually impaired as well as um, some mobility instructors who have worked with New York City uh, for several years and helped New York City to understand the importance of accessible pedestrian signals. Um, Jean Berkwin um, consults with them on a regular basis um, as part of the PASS coalition. And um, you know, New York City, when they began implementing the the original reason for us wanting, going after, I should say, um, accessible pedestrian signals was when New York City went from the 
walk, don't walk um, signage to the picture, there's a technical name, but I don't know what it is, of somebody walking or not walking. And particularly for people who are low vision, that made a big difference. They might not be able to see the person moving in the walk, don't walk anymore, whereas before they could see walk was shorter than don't walk. Um, and we said, okay, well, this is, you know, something that New York City is going to be working on. Let's write to them about accessible pedestrian signals. And we began working with Matt Saplin at the Mayor's Office for People with Disabilities and um, some other people along with the newly formed PASS Coalition and kind of laying the groundwork for the need for accessible pedestrian signals. And then a few years ago when New York really started the implementation of lead pedestrian intervals, those took place, like Janet said, by flipping a switch. And we literally had a bunch of New York City residents, people that worked in New York City, lived in New York City, traveled to New York City, who didn't realize that the street they had been crossing all these years now had different requirements for crossing and they were losing out on those precious seconds. And because um, there's no traffic surge well, when you start crossing. Right. It's you exactly. And there was some research done. Janet might be able to comment on it, but it was several seconds that people were losing. Yeah, three to seven seconds. I, I was going to I was going to say, I think it was three to seven seconds, which that's a lot of time when when a, a um, light is put in and the walk phase is assigned a time length, they estimate that people are walking so many feet per second. So you're losing several feet each of those seconds that you're missing out on crossing. And you're also more of a hazard because the sighted driver assumes that because you didn't move and you're still standing standing on the curb that you're not going to move. So you're, a, in my opinion, a higher chance of being hit in that situation. So um, we have continued to, ACB of New York actually had Janet speak back in 2007. She did a whole day presentation for us. It was fabulous. And we put some engineers in New York under blindfold. And ironically, there was an accident um, during these people being under blindfold at the intersection they were waiting to cross. You mean <laughs> um, one of them was hit, or what do you mean? No, it was two vehicles hitting each other. So it, it kind of really you know, showed the importance to the engineers of what was going on. Um, you know, so it, it was a fabulous training that we did back then. And um, that was really a great educational piece. And that's a, a very important part in advocacy is to educate yourself about things. It's not just about what you want. Like Janet said before, sometimes people say, well, this is what I want. What you want may not be what is legally either required or has been found to be the best accessible. Um, when we were working on the accessible pedestrian signal case in Nassau County, they kept telling me, we can't do this intersection or that intersection because we can't put the curb cut where we need it to be. And I'm like, I don't care. I'll step off the curb. The wheelchair user can still use the, the ramp that goes out into the middle of the intersection. You know, 
just because it's accessible for one person, sometimes it's not accessible for the other person. And we have to advocate for full accessibility, but sometimes our accessibility with regards to the pole placement and those type of things, we really you know, need to advocate on the local level when we know that work is going to be done on intersections. Um, and that's really the time to begin to ask questions and say things like, well, you know, at, you know, Maple and First Avenue, I would like an accessible pedestrian signal and this is why. And it has to be, you can't request an accessible signal where there is not an existing signal per se. Um, you know, that's a whole separate procedure. But if you have a an intersection that you cross, and you're finding it difficult. And, you know, part of that may be the lead pedestrian interval that we spoke about earlier. Um, you know, really lay the groundwork, write the letters to the people in your area, discuss it at your local chapter meetings. Um, with the um, Long Island case. Um, this was a lawsuit that you and Mike filed, right? Um, yes, it was. It was um, and Ed Malloy, yes. And it was regarding the installation of accessible pedestrian signals in Nassau County. And the Office for the Physically Challenged in Nassau County had been told by United Spinal Association that since ACB and NFB couldn't agree, they didn't need to install accessible pedestrian signals. And they took that as, you know, legal advice. And hence did not install signals so when we approached them along a corridor where they were going to be doing some work on installing signals we could show them in the minutes of our meeting that we talked about accessible pedestrian signals and where we wanted them and why members wanted them um you know so that when you're working on issues it's really important to to write you know discussion took place about accessible pedestrian signals in whatever area. And it if our minutes became part of, you know, items requested in discovery. So, you know, that's always something to keep in mind. I know people sometimes think minutes are not that important and that they shouldn't be kept necessarily for long periods of time. But we had to go back 10 years and we were able to, thank goodness. Um, but that was what really laid our groundwork in Nassau County for signals in Nassau County. Um, and then in New York City, um, you know, it's it's been an interesting uh, legal situation and, and keeping them, keeping things moving in the city with the city. Okay, so let's step back. Let's suppose uh, you're a member of a, a chapter or let's say one is a member of a chapter mm -hmm. that hasn't really addressed this accessible pedestrian signal issue at all and you're trying to figure out well, where to start you know who do you call uh, how do you find out um, who the relevant person is in the local transportation department well and and what they're what what are their plans for fixing sidewalks and streets and something that that might you know impact your uh, right or need to have an accessible pedestrian signal? So how do you go about that? Well, very good question. Um, 
on the boxes that control the um you know the the signals yeah um you can usually tell through that who controls the intersection um wow. you can also contact the local municipality and give them the two street names and they'll be able to tell you if it's a state or a local controlled uh intersection and that's you know something else that an organization or you as a, or somebody as a member of an organization can write letters um to request a signal at a specific intersection and that again is laying the groundwork when we um this was kind of funny we wrote a list of intersections to nassau county and then um got our own list back uh, several years later <laughs> to show that nothing had been done with them um so they clearly got the letter but just didn't do anything with it and I, i'll never forget the lady from the department of transportation calling me and saying so let me make sure i understand what you're looking for and i'm like yeah it's called an accessible pedestrian signal and and she was you know something she had never heard of and she eventually sent me back my own letter <laughs> um so it, um you know but but starting out by finding out who who controls the intersection is it a state is it a federal um is it a, a local municipality and then working from there and again you know educating whoever you're writing to as to why you need that intersection is there a bus stop um are, are there doctor's offices are there stores near there um are there multiple people who are blind um i we can kind of talk about um you know some of that stuff i guess is, well, go for it um yeah so you know janet I, this is janet go ahead janet. jump in for just a second sure. to say um, Lori, you mentioned that sometimes you can tell by looking at the traffic signal controller. Um, yeah, you could probably tell me it. even what they say. That's, <laughs> that's not true in many states. Oh, it's really? True okay. in some locations and not in others. But my experience has been if you call the, you know, Department of Transportation office for the area, if they're not the ones who control that signal, they're going to give you the name and number of the person who does. But I also encourage you to put any of those requests in writing yes. and to follow up if you don't get a response because uh, phone calls don't get the same kind of response as written information. And that letter needs to say, you know, something about you have a disability and need to have access to the signal information that's provided to sighted pedestrians. Yeah. So but you get that advocacy out there at the very beginning of your request. And and it's it's important if you have multiple people that use the intersection or you have a mobility instructor who lives in the area and is familiar, a guide dog school can zoom in on Google Earth or whatever it is and look at the intersection and say, this is why, um, you know, somebody, you know, our graduate would need an, an accessible signal. I know graduates that have been of schools that have been told, like, I wouldn't recommend crossing this intersection without an accessible pedestrian signal. You know, so that's also giving more leverage to your um, situation. So it sounds like what you and Janet are both suggesting is that to start with, 
we need to do a fair amount of homework about what intersections are important to us and for what reason and who we need to contact in the local or county or, or state government that has information and responsibility uh, over traffic signals on those intersections. Is that fair? Yes, yes. I, I just would like to mention it's interesting because now that I'm in Virginia, I've only been here not even two years, but the state of Virginia sends out a little like survey thing to fill out and on there they want to know about, you know, if you have intersections that are state controlled. So when they're planning, can they build that, like Janet said, into a plan? So it really is going to vary depending on, you know, how your state and how your local municipalities handle things. But it is important to to get in as early as possible. Right. So I, I'm going to add from my experience in Minnesota and elsewhere that um, there are in many areas something called uh, metropolitan planning uh, organization. And these organizations are established under federal law and they're what they are. They're regional planning entities and they do coordinating planning for transportation and transit as well as other things like uh, water and sewer um, but they have advisory committees and they often are involved in uh, determining uh, what sidewalks what intersections what streets are repaired and when um, and so one of the things one can do as a local advocate is to become familiar to see whether there is a metropolitan planning organization and what advisory committees they have and what information you can get about not just what they're doing next week, but what they're planning to do next year and the year after that, because that's where we can be most effective is to build this these accessible pedestrian signal uh, issue in the front end, as opposed to trying to get it in the back end, which is often where we are. But if we can be part of the planning process, and it also is much cheaper to do something uh, first at the planning stage than it is uh, a retrofit issue. Um, so, and there's a, they're not called metropolitan planning organizations, but there's an equivalent kind of organization in rural areas as well, but I'm blanking on the name of it. I apologize. Um, so it sounds I like think a lot they're of homework. actually, Chris, I think they're actually rural planning organizations. Oh, um, well. <laughs> but I, and that's a really good point because the MPOs often are deciding what intersections are going to get uh, um, renovated or worked on, what street corridors are going to be worked on and um, getting details about accessible pedestrian signals included from the beginning certainly can be important. And really just having a person who's blind show up at one of those meetings um, and saying, I cross the streets independently and I need these uh, facilities is, it's a huge, huge impetus for these folks to pay more attention because um, they don't realize you're out there and um, just showing up sometimes can make a huge difference. Yeah, I'm glad you made that point. And, and in addition, right now, although uh, we don't have Crystal Paul, um, 
there is the effort by the current administration to do some significant funding for infrastructure. Um, and to the extent that that's gonna mean billions of dollars for uh, streets and sidewalks and intersections and bridges and roundabouts and all kinds of traffic things, um, that is gonna trigger a, a lot of planning and a lot of obligations under existing ADA regulations that because uh, alterations in new construction have much stricter accessibility standards than existing facilities. And I don't wanna get into the weeds on this, but the point is that if there's gonna be a lot of money coming down the pike from the federal government, um, we need to be watchful of that and talk to people in your local area to find out, you know, when that money is arriving and who's planning as to how it's going to be used, what intersections are going to be done. Uh, and, you know, if they're going to completely redo a sidewalk, are they going to, are they going to redo the, the traffic signal? Um, those are the kinds of things, unfortunately, that, or fortunately, that we need to know because those trigger legal obligations, whether the traffic engineers or the local community know it or not, um, which is a fair amount of work for us local advocates, but you know, there, there's no replacement for it in, in my perspective. Um, so what about the politics of this? And I'm talking here about local city councils or county commissions. Uh, what part of advocacy, Lori, were you guys involved with, uh, with the, the political decision makers? Well, um, actually in the early days of the past coalition, um, we had some great meetings with, um, I think she was the borough president at the time, Gail Brewer, with her office and she, they had made arrangements for a bunch of us to meet and um, we had some really good dialogue going on about pedestri accessible pedestrian signals um, and ACB and NFB worked very closely together um, on those two issues. And I think that also has helped keep things in the forefront of uh, traffic engineers in New York City particular because we have a large group of people that, um, you know, while we're not happy with the level that they have installed, signals they um you know the the past coalition has um really kept been a thorn in the side i guess i would say of the department of transportation and and kept keep reminding them of the needs of people who are blind which is important okay and uh so it sounds like ACB and NFB were able to work together on the on the local level, mm -hmm. uh, and that may or may not be true in your uh, the, the yes, town or that, location. Yes, that is that is something that people are, should be aware of. Living, but it is something that 
any grassroots advocates uh, need to uh, need to reach out and think about because you know the more people pounding on the doors the better is is kind of what it comes down to um and so how long has this local grassroots advocacy been going on in new york before uh you got to disability rights advocates and consideration of litigation um tori about 10 years would you say yeah pass was formed in 2010 so yeah, and yeah. the lawsuit was filed in 2018 so eight years eight years yeah but presumably there was some there was activity before the official formation of pass right yeah i, I think the initial emails that i have were like from 2000 end of 2009 beginning of 2010 type of thing and we also worked closely with the um providers in new york state the uh, vision services are provided by contract agencies and and we had a bunch of them sign on and support accessible pedestrian signals back in 2010 so that was also very helpful so i know that um there are some important facts to get out on the table in talking about uh, getting accessible pedestrian signals on a systemic basis. By systemic, I mean, you know, not just uh, intersection A and intersection C, but, uh, uh, you know, on a lot of intersections that make it part of the, the planning and replacement of existing uh, inaccessible pedestrian signals, et cetera. So um, are those facts that, that Lori, you and your colleagues were able to develop? I mean, can you, can you get uh, that information either as a matter of law in New York or, you know, how do you go about finding all that stuff out? Like how many inaccessible pedestrian signals there are, how many accessible pedestrian signals have been installed? And, you know, uh, in the last five years, which, uh, newly installed pedestrian signals and, and where those ki that kind of information is that available to a member of the public um in new york because the you have state controlled intersection and uh, intersections and then you have local controlled intersections it would you'd have to go to each you know division to get an answer to that Unfortunately, most places in New York do not list that information. Um, I know Tori was able to get a list of signals. And I think when I was talking with somebody from Greater New York Council of the Blind, I think they have a partial, at least a partial listing on their website. I don't know how current that is, though. Okay, yeah, this so. is Tori. I, I, the other thing you can do is file a Freedom of Information Act, or in New York, it's called the Freedom of Information Law request um, to the Department of Transportation and ask for this information as a citizen. Okay, so that's one thing that local advocates want to find out. Um, maybe just by calling the city or the city manager's office or somebody that might know as to whether or not there is a state law or even a local ordinance that gives them a right to get this kind of information. Because if you have the right, well, then you want to ask for it. Yeah. And that's, that's really when we began on with the Long Island case in Nassau County, when we did the freedom of information request to the county and got back our own request, <laughs> 
we were like, okay. And we knew of other people that had made requests, but we did not get their letters back. Mm -hmm. We then knew it was a bigger problem. And ironically, right around the same time as we were filing the case, there was something in, in, uh, in the five towns area about a blind child and not being able to cross the street. And there was, there was a whole big thing in the newspaper about it. So, you know, it, it, it made things even more interesting, but um, you know that is a is a very good initial step to take um, at the beginning to see what kind of information you get back. Well, that raises an interesting question, which is from a perspective of let's say a local ACB chapter or other chapter of interested people. To what extent uh, is it helpful to? hold a press conference or do other media events to shed, if you'll pardon the expression, light on uh, this issue uh, and to raise public awareness and public consciousness? Um, you know, it's, it is definitely something people could do, especially if they know that there's funding going into a specific intersection. Um, you know, if you can get the media's attention, it's that's a good thing to do. Um, nowadays, with YouTube and things like that, you could also do your own little video and put it up on YouTube and, you know, put it on like your local chapter's website to get the word out there. Did you guys do any uh, more traditional uh, media around uh, the issue of accessible pedestrian signals? You know, interestingly enough, years ago, New York State um, began a big implementation of accessible pedestrian signals and Long Island um, did a story with um, one of the local cable news stations. And then after um, some decisions were made in the New York City case, we did get some coverage. Okay. All right. Yeah, I know in Minnesota, we started a, a white cane award for cities that installed mm -hmm. accessible pedestrian signals and tried to get some press to say that they were doing good stuff uh, to uh, raise the issue. Well, thank this, you. That was a, this, Janet, I, I think that's a really good point to make. Going out and saying y'all are doing bad stuff sometimes can get the hackles of the engineers up. Right. To really recognize the good stuff going on can and be more helpful in my experience we than also, bringing up issues and concerns, unless you've really encountered already um, a great deal of difficulty. That To start with, let's praise where people are doing a good job is a really important part of it and help educate the public about why the accessible signals are important. We also, uh, the Long Island chapter of ACB of New York also recognized the, um, I think it's called Region 1 that covers Long Island. We recognized them and gave them an award uh, at one of our fundraising dinners because they were doing such good work. And, and now there's quite a few um, accessible pedestrian signals on large state roads. Okay, great. Well, I think we've come to the point where we want to hear from our lawyer in residence, Tori Addison. Isn't that also you? 
<laughs> no, I don't count. <laughs> um, so, Tori, you're the lead lawyer on the case against New York City regarding installation or lack of installation of accessible pedestrian signals. And DRA also has a case in uh, Chicago uh, on behalf of ACB of Metropolitan Chicago. Maybe you could just briefly bring us up to date on the status of those two suits, and then we can get into them a little more. Sure. Uh, thank you. I really appreciate you having me on here. Um, so, you know, as Chris said, I work for Disability Rights Advocates. It's a nonprofit law firm um, that does systemic class action impactful cases on behalf of people with disabilities. Uh, we work with ACB a lot, uh, not just with these APS cases, but um, getting audio description on Hulu, HBO, Netflix, uh, once upon a time AMC theaters before they were all closed for the pandemic, um, and voting rights cases and things like that. So, you know, we have a long history with ACB. Um, but as Lori explained, you know, in New York, there had been an incredible amount of really phenomenal and sustained advocacy that by 2018 when we filed our case out of new york's um so new york city is has 44,000 intersections but only 13,200 are signalized meaning that they have you know pedestrian control signals that have the walk and don't walk of those pedestrian signals only three percent had aps um and so despite the eight years of advocacy that was sort of where they were at. And, you know, that's where we came in and we filed suit in 2018. We went through the lengthy process of litigation. Um, we finally uh, filed uh, essentially a, a motion to, to say that the city of New York had discriminated against blind people and people with visual disabilities um, by not installing enough APS. Uh, and the court agreed. Uh, so last fall, the court issued a very lengthy um, and, and excellent opinion explaining that the current lack of accessible pedestrian signals in New York is woefully inadequate <laughs> to provide a blind person safe and independent access to the city. Um, and so now where we are is with that ruling, we have to find out, we have to figure out a way to fix it. So both sides have submitted proposed remedies to fix it and add more APS to the city. And we're going to have a, you know, a, a battle of those remedies. Chicago um, was similarly a case. So that case was filed in 2019. The local ACB had similarly done an incredible amount of advocacy, lots of going to meetings, writing letters, you know, trying to get DOT um, to pay attention to it. And at the time we filed that suit in 2019, there were 10, <laughs> 10 in the city. There are now 17. So hey, almost doubled. <laughs> almost doubled. Um, so, you know, just to give you a sense of, uh, and of how the, many, and of how many uh, pedestrian controlled intersections? Uh, they have about 2,600 signalized intersections. So okay. it's not New York. New York is exceptionally big, uh, but still a, a almost trivial number, um, which of course they had, you know, only installed in one area. <laughs> so that was, that's the kind of situation that led to litigation. That case is now still in the midst of uh, discovery. Um, but one of the interesting or and or exciting things that has happened is the Department of Justice has intervened both 
So it filed a motion to intervene in the Chicago case and to be part of the case. Um, and in the New York case, we're, we're much farther along, um, but they filed a statement of interest as to the remedy, essentially laying out what the legal obligations of the city are. Okay, so let's let's explain a, a little for for non-lawyers what this what this uh, intervention means. So, you know, when the Department of Justice becomes involved, they come they become involved on behalf of the United States of America, uh, and so when they file a motion to intervene, what they're saying is this is the position of the United States government with regard to this issue. So. What did the De Department of Justice and its complaint assert were the rights of uh, blind people that were being violated exactly? That's exactly right. I actually worked for DOJ before I came here. <laughs> so um, in the Chicago motion to intervene, I mean, that that is obviously mostly about the United States's interest in the case. And, you know, they took they have taken the position as we did that the cities just weren't meeting their obligations under the ADA. And what um, does that mean? What were those obligations as the, the government spelled it out? So the ADA it has two fundamental pillars, I think is the easiest way to describe it. The first is this idea of meaningful access and, and program access. And what that means is, you know, when the ADA was passed, uh, municipalities, particularly transportation um, departments, were up in arms that accessibility would cost a fortune, it would bankrupt them, no one would use accessible features. You know, uh, some of it was just this idea that people with disabilities don't leave their homes. Um, but it was also just this idea that, you know, it would cost too much money. So the, the grand bargain of the ADA was, all right, you don't have to make everything accessible today or tomorrow. Um, you have to provide enough accessibility that someone can meaningfully use whatever the program is, whether it's a library service, parks, um, or in this case, you know, intersections. Um, but, and this was the big but, when you have new construction, when you're installing something that's brand new, or when you're renovating, so you've chosen to spend money to improve something, to change something, then money doesn't matter. You have to make it accessible regardless of the cost. Um, and those were, those were, it's the same issues in both New York and Chicago. New York was putting up 100 to 150 brand new signals every year with no APS. They were doing massive multi-million dollar renovation projects, no APS. Um, so on top of just not having enough overall, they weren't meeting the other piece of their obligation, which was to make all of the new facilities accessible. Okay, and when we're talking about accessible uh, street crossing and intersections, we're talking about using uh, the accessible pedestrian signal as a means of providing uh, for what the ADA refers to as effective communication, right? There's an obligation uh, that public entities have and private entities as well to provide for auxiliary aids and services to provide for effective communication so that you can have meaningful access. Am I, am I stating that right? 
That's right. I mean, there are a lot of other regs that we right. think apply. I don't think they're super interesting, but but that's the gist of it. You know, there has to be something that's effective. And when you have a city the size of New York that has, and I know you asked Janet this question, there are 4,900 LPIs out of 13,000. So, you know, nearly half of the intersections have these very confusing signal timing changes um, that provides what they tout as these phenomenal safety improvements for pedestrians, but they're not accessible to people who are blind. Um, and that's that's really just stunning. And, and that goes to the heart of it. Okay. And so what, what the United States said in its intervention, which I think was the first time it was said uh, that I'm aware of by the government in, in litigation, was that accessible pedestrian signals for access to your, you know, your your intersection grid, your your street grid, was a requirement of the ADA, and the ADA was violated if you didn't provide such meaningful access. Is that fair? Yeah, that's exactly right. Okay, so that's a big deal, and from from my perspective as a lawyer, and um, I should add that this the bargain that you're talking about really predates the ADA. It went back to Section 504. And uh, the uh, for recipients of federal financial assistance, the state and local government said, you know, hey, you know, if, if we can provide access to our program uh, without having to make a facility fully accessible, that should be okay. And that's the bargain that was struck in the original 504 regulations back in 1977. Uh, but that just shows you how much older I am than you. Um, oh no, I didn't. I didn't go that far back because of the back and forth about the regs and how weak they were. But essentially, yeah. yes. <laughs> so um, okay, so that sets out the the basic, um, I think, parameters of the litigation. And it, DRA has selected uh, two cities to do this litigation because. I'm not don't mean to put words in your mouth, but you have in both cases an active uh, local uh, advocacy uh, that have laid the groundwork that you could then build upon. Why is that important uh, from a litigation standpoint? I, there's absolutely no way I could emphasize advocacy enough. I, I'm a lawyer. I do disability access cases. I love to sue people, but it really is a last resort. And there's a lot of reasons for that. The first and main reason is it takes years. I mean, we filed this case in New York in 2018. Here we are, you know, three years later, and we're just getting to the part where we start coming up with a fix. Um, so it's really, really slow. And advocacy is usually much faster <laughs> if you can get the ear of the right person. Um, and, you know, when you're talking about something like safety, which I think APS is and, and, and what it's about, that that's a really key thing to keep in mind. The second piece, and, you know, Lori um, mentioned this, is when you're doing a litigation, it's important to show just not necessarily legally, but just for a judge who's probably not disabled and probably doesn't really have a sense of these issues, how important this issue is to the community and how much 
people had tried other avenues. So when we did discovery in our New York case, the city had to produce back all of the letters. And it was not just the PASS coalition. It was not just ACB. There were letters from local council members. There were letters from constituents saying, hey, I can't get to work. You need to do something about this. And letters from uh, schools saying, you know, we have students who are blind there. They can't safely get here. You need to do something about this. And all of that advocacy mattered because I could put it together and show the judge and say, look how important this is. Look how much it matters. And, it, and I think that kind of evidence is really incredibly persuasive. The other piece is that, you know, the requests, as Janet talked about, um, those matter too. So in New York, there is a, there's a formal request system. New York has an official APS program, which I think sets it apart from um, a lot of other cities that people might be in, but they had a request program. And as of December of 2020, uh, they had 2,500 requests languishing in the queue. They install 150 a year. <laughs> so uh, at the current pace, they'll get through all the requests if there are no new ones in 17 years. And that matters. You know, that matters a lot. It shows really in profound and real terms how ineffective what, you know, the municipality has been doing, that it's just not enough. So all of those are good reasons. The other reason is litigation is uncertain. You, you don't have a, a guarantee on anything. And, you know, the ADA and Section 504, and we also sued under the New York City Human Rights Law, which is a local law. They're strong laws, but they're not, they're not flawless. And you don't know what judge you're going to get. And, and, you know, these things are all very uncertain. So I would definitely throw my hat into the try everything first. Contact the DOT. Contact your local council member, your local politician. Contact the news. Do whatever it is. Um, that you can do. And if that's not getting anywhere, you don't necessarily need to wait eight years <laughs> as ACB of New York. So uh, optimistically, you know, thought any day things I think would, would turn around. Um, but I think that is a good um, set of facts. The other, the other key piece is the situation in New York and Chicago were so bad. They are still so bad. Um, there are so few APS. It's really, it's really staggering and profound. So that that's another really key piece. Okay. So um, since you're now in in the so-called remedy phase of New York, you've the, you've successfully established the district court judges ruled that uh, New York City has violated the ADA and Section 504 and the local human rights law. So now you're in the phase of trying to figure out, you know, what what's the fix um, for this? And we haven't really talked about time and obviously this is still in flux, but you know, this isn't gonna be like making instant soup, right? I mean, there's gonna be some kind of remedy that's gonna exist over a period of, of time where things are, are phased in, right? Absolutely. I mean, this can't happen overnight, particularly in a city like New York, um, where there is an incredible, <laughs> there's an incredible amount going on on any particular street corner. Um, but the timeline, as anticipated, I think, by the city, I mean, under their pace of 150 a year, the city wouldn't be accessible for more than 80 years. 
Um, so we're certainly asking for, for more than that. Um, yeah, both sides have put in their papers. The city is remedying theirs um, or, or amending it. They're changing it in some way. Um, but essentially, you know, what, what we've asked, we, Janet is our expert and um, she makes a recommendation to the court and her recommendation was a transition plan of 10 years. Um, to make things accessible. And transition plan is just for the non-lawyers. Um, it is a legal term um, under the ADA that cities have to come up with. Um, they're obligated to come up with for some things, um, but essentially lays out a plan of how you're going to make something accessible over a period of time. Right. And under the ADA, under the title that relates to public entities, uh, they have to do a self-evaluation to identify barriers and then uh, create a transition plan for the removal of those barriers where you specify what barrier is and when and how it's going to be removed. Um, and that's an important tool because among other things, uh, the regulations require that they consult with disability groups and they have to keep a record of that consultation for three years. So one of the things that people can do who want to advocate on the local level is to contact the ADA coordinators of your local municipality or county because any uh, government with 50 or more employees has to have an ADA coordinator and that ADA coordinator is responsible for, among other things, doing the transition plan and self-evaluation. So that's a one place you can start to get some uh, information, hopefully. Um, so uh, let me understand one thing. Supposing you're in a town, a small town, and they have four inaccessible pedestrian signals, you know, visual, walk, don't walk, or the walking person, or not walking person. What does the ADA say, in theory, about how many of those signals have to be ultimately changed to be accessible pedestrian signals? So it doesn't. The ADA it has a general obligation to um, make things readily accessible to people with disabilities, but it doesn't say what that means. And that makes sense in a lot of ways because you have a lot of people with a lot of different kinds of disabilities and there's a lot of different facilities and programs out there. Um, so it doesn't specifically say what what courts have interpreted it to say is that the city has to provide meaningful access, and this is a term of art um, that, you know, I think a lot of experts can't even explain, uh, meaningful access to whatever the city is providing. So uh, it's a very squishy standard that is not spelled out in the law. So for example, in New York, um, I'm just making these intersections up, okay. Uh, so uh, you'd have, uh, let's say you had a, a accessible pedestrian signal on 20th street and then you had an inaccessible signal on 22nd and then you had one on 23rd and could, could New York say, well, um, a blind person, you know, doesn't have to cross at 22nd street. They might just have to walk down a block to cross at uh, uh, 23rd or, or 20th. Could that be, uh, you know, kind of true? It's a good question. I don't think so because the it, we're talking about safety and we're talking about paths of travel. And this is something that Janet probably can talk about much better than me, but 
it's our position that a, the path of travel has to be accessible. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, the number of signalized intersections in New York City is relatively high. It's 30%, but it's not every intersection. What, one of the pieces of this is that we think, a bit, we think of it a little bit as the city has made a decision by putting in a pedestrian signal that this crossing cannot safely be done without a pedestrian signal. They've made that decision for sighted pedestrians. So they have to make that information available to people with vision disabilities. That's part of the effective communication. Okay, I think that's very important that they, they made a decision that pedestrians need this uh, additional assistance. I mean, a pedestrian could just try to look at the traffic signal and read the traffic, which is in effect what blind people have to do because even if there's a visual pedestrian signal, it's like there is no pedestrian signal from a blind person's perspective. Right. Okay. And this, if I could just comment, it even the, the bigger issue now with lead pedestrian intervals and similar configurations, you're losing that time and it's not equal access. Or meaningful and, access. Or meaningful access. It's like you can't fly over an intersection just because there's no APS there. You still, if you're going from street to street to street, you have to be able to cross this, each street individually. Okay, good point. Right, because right now, I mean, right now there's only 5% of intersections are accessible. But, you know, let's say they, they did it like that and they weren't in some areas. How does it help you as a person trying to get to your job or the library or, you know, the police station, wherever it is you're going, the grocery store, if there's an APS somewhere else, it needs to be on your path of travel. Um, And that's really, really important. And, you know, to be totally clear, we did not seek in this lawsuit that intersections that didn't have pedestrian signals, so the other 70%, we didn't seek that those have APS installed. It's only seeking, and those, just to be clear, are intersections that might have a stop sign um, or just be uncontrolled. Uh, It's only where there has been a determination made. And the way that this is done in New York, and I, I can't speak for other places, maybe Janet can, is that traffic engineers go out to an intersection and they study it. And they study the traffic patterns and they study the volume of traffic, both car and pedestrian. And they make an evaluation that, you know what, this isn't safe unless we put in a signal. We need a signal for this. It's when they make that decision, we think that needs to be accessible. Yeah, and in fact, uh, my recollection of those, what they're called is traffic warrants that an engineer has to assess. And one of the elements of the traffic warrant is uh, how many people have been injured or killed. And I'm trying to remember in the manual and uniform traffic control devices whether the the current draft says you have to have four uh, people injured or killed as one of the elements uh, for a traffic signal. Now, you could still put in a traffic signal even if you didn't have four, but my point is that uh, they do look at crashes, they do look at injuries, but for some reason they seem to think, you know, four people is, you know, less than four, eh, maybe not as significant. So, okay, so um, you're, you're in the remedy phase. The United States has sent in a letter in, uh, to the court in New York saying that the city's 
proposed remedy is inadequate. Um, I don't think I, I don't think I asked you what the city's proposal was. So just uh, give me a, a sentence or two on that and what Justice said about it. So the the, the DOJ didn't explicitly um, critic it. It implicitly criticized it rather than in, implicit rather than explicitly. Um, but the city's proposal and, you know, again, the caveat that they have until tomorrow to amend and change their proposal was to create 10 zones of accessibility. That's what they call them. They picked 10 zip codes out of New York's 145 and they agreed to make all of the APS in those zones accessible. I mean, all the pedestrian signals. Accessible. All the pedestrian signals. I'm, yes, I'm sorry. Um, but that beyond that, they would make uh, EPPs accessible, exclusive pedestrian phases. There are only 100 in New York. Um, they have no plan regarding leading pedestrian intervals. Uh, and presumably there would be no request system because this, uh, they say these 10 zones of accessibility would be enough to provide meaningful access. And, and oh, I was just going to say in, in the zones, uh, there's one in all of Brooklyn. <laughs> there's one in all of Queens. There's none in Staten Island. Uh, yeah. And I just wanted to say they took those zip codes from the American Community Survey, which find me a group of blind people that filled that out recently. <laughs> it was not just that it was, they took that and then they found hotspots, but of course there are many, many hotspots, so yeah. to speak, uh, high density areas that have a high concentration of people with vision disabilities. And there's more than 10. So in order yep. to narrow it down further, they also chose areas where there had been at least three requests for APS over some period of years um, and I forget what the third factor was, but, um, but yeah, something like that. So, okay. so it was is, a unique formula that they used. Right. So it is, it, would disability rights advocates be receptive to conducting similar, uh, accessible pedestrian signal litigation in other cities on behalf of ACB chapters and affiliates? Yes, absolutely. I mean, if this is something that your community has advocated for, feel strongly about, and really hasn't been getting anywhere, um, please let me know. I'm also just happy to talk to anyone who has questions about what that would look like or, um, you know, what your rights are. You know, please do feel free to reach out to me. Um, I'd be happy to help uh, any and all ACB affiliates. Oh, that's great. Um, I'm going to... Uh make available on, on the Environmental Access Committee page, which is each ACB committee has a page under acb.org. I will make available on that page in the coming weeks, not only a link to the, this podcast, um, but also some of the documents that we've been referring to, including the very excellent uh, expert report by Janet Barlow, which sets out um, the steps that a blind person has to do to cross the street and how accessible pedestrian signals uh, enable a person to do so much more safely and some of the statistics on that that uh, local advocates could use to educate uh, transportation engineers and politicians. So um, look for that. Those things will be available in turn, including the lawsuits that were filed and the court opinion and a few other things. I just haven't had a chance to put that on the web. 
Um, I want to ask you now, uh, before we get to questions, uh, because I do want to enable our audience to ask questions, I want to ask you about a slightly different issue, um, and one that I have to confess I frankly wasn't aware of until we talked, which is that Disability Rights Advocates is also litigating uh, apps for smartphones I'm not talking about accessible pedestrian signals. I'm talking about those little things you have on your screen and your smartphone that are not accessible to people who use screen readers like VoiceOver or JAWS or whatever on their on their phone. Tell me about some of the litigation DRA is uh, is doing for inaccessible smartphone apps. Well, everything is an app now. <laughs> so right. this is this is one of the innovative, you know, developments that has not uh, caught up with accessibility obligations. Um, so we have the the uh, Hulu, Netflix, and HBO suits. Uh, I believe all of them also dealt with the apps for those programs um, not having uh, not being accessible, not having audio description. But specifically re regarding apps. Um, we have a suit against the uh, Sharks, the, the hockey team, uh, because their app was inaccessible. We also have a suit against ADP, the accounting software. Um, neither the website nor the app are accessible. Um, and we're also They're investigating. Terrible. Yeah. <laughs> and, and we're also investigating um, a lot of the apps that came up for um COVID-19 scheduling. The other, the other more ubiquitous version of that. Uh, many, many, many doctor's offices are using uh, these MyChart, MyHealth um, apps that are all run by Epic Systems. They're, uh, as we understand them, inaccessible. Um, and we also <laughs> had one against the New York um, Board of Elections because both their website and their apps uh, were inaccessible and you couldn't register to vote if you used a screen reader. Um, or find your polling place. Yeah. Have you looked at any of the apps that the colleges are using regarding um, some of them make you if you're if you have class on that day, you have to select, you know, like that you're not you haven't been exposed, you don't have a fever, all that stuff. Oh, I no, I haven't heard about that. Obviously, uh, my college days were <laughs> before that. So no, I haven't heard of that. Yeah, um, I don't know if people are having accessibility issues, but that is something that you may want to look into. Sure. Yeah, and we've also had complaints at ACB that uh, the DoorDash app is not accessible in its most recent iteration, although there's some dispute about that within different commenters. But I have put your name out as someone uh, that people can contact with their uh, complaints about uh, inaccessibility of uh, DoorDash. By the way, what's the standard for determining whether an app is accessible or for that matter, whether a website's accessible? I mean, how do you know? I mean, just because, you know, just because an old Luddite like Chris Bell can't figure out how to use it doesn't mean it's not accessible. It could be operator error. Well, there's two there's two answers to that there because there's two different questions. One is what's the standard? The answer is under the law, the there isn't a official standard promulgated by um, the DOJ or the regulatory um, agencies. Those have been in limbo um, for a long time, uh, similar to the standards regarding pedestrian rights of way. Actually, um, so courts have come out on, on different sides on uh, this, but the emerging trend is that there's a standard called WCAG 
WCAG 2.0. Um, that is a, a many courts have considered that to be the standard to comply with the ADA. It is an accessibility standard that has lots of requirements for websites for markup to ensure that screen readers like JAWS and VoiceOver are can accurately not only read the con not only read the content but be able to to move around and navigate the website. Um, but you know, for example, in the voting case, I mean, you you literally couldn't register to vote. We have another case against New York State. Um, their their emergency alert system, where you can sign up to get messages if there's something there's an emergency happening. It's inaccessible. You can't even register. Um, so that's the user question of how do I know if it's inaccessible? But the legal question is not entirely settled, but certainly moving strongly towards WCAG. Um, okay, so if, if I were just a blind person and I was having trouble with a website or an app, is there a like a, a free software that I could use that would test the accessibility, let's say, of, of a website? I mean, is there a way for me to, to figure out what, where some of the problems are that is independent of my own knowledge or skill? I think there are websites out there that do that, but for purposes of the, of the legal standard, right. it's not about whether it would comply to every piece of the accessibility standards, even under WCAG, it'd be whether you can access the, whether you can meaningfully access the content, whether you can actually buy a ticket to a Sharks game, whether you can register to vote. Um, you know, this is, again, an example where they're not held to perfection. Um, but, you know, if it's not usable, then, yeah, that's a real, real problem. Okay. Yeah, there are There is software out there that's free that will help you identify particular accessibility uh, limitations and, and problems. That, that that we can use to at least uh, backstop and see whether you know there is in fact objectively some problem uh, as opposed to our just individual personal lack of uh, uh, knowledge. Um, I just wanted to put that out. Well, I think we've had a really good show and I think it's now time to open up uh, to questions from our audience. Well, um, good, after, good, good evening. Uh Great uh, presentation. As Chris mentioned, I'm actually one of the plaintiffs in the Chicago case and uh, just went through my deposition. That's worse than going to the dentist, guys. It's, it was not fun. Um, but um, so we're getting through that phase. Um, I guess my uh, comments is, is um, that um, I think I think it's uh, really important that um, I, I just wanted to emphasize, I guess, that what Lori and um, Tori kind of mentioned, that one of the things we've learned in going through the Chicago case is that anything you do in writing is a, um, a record that the defendant can come back and ask for. And so you do need to keep really careful minutes and stuff like that. And another thing that is a record that I found out, if you're doing stuff on social media and you're putting things out there, uh, they can come back and ask for it. I got asked a number of questions in my deposition about things that are on my social media. 
regarding traveling and things like that. So I uh, just would say uh, anyone out there, if you're thinking about getting into this litigation uh, for accessible signals and that, uh, and you put things out on social media, that's okay. But just know that uh, they may ask you about them. So I just wanted to share that. Thanks for the opportunity. Yes. Thanks. And if I could just add to that, thank you, Ray, for saying that ACB of New York many, many moons ago, I want to say in the early 2000s, had an email list. And when you typed in a Google search, you got back emails that had gone over that list because it was a public list. And the county, uh, Nassau County, this was in the Nassau case, found emails about pedestrian signals that people had written. So it's, it is definitely something to always keep in mind. This is Mary Beth Metzger. Oh, hello, Mary Beth. Hi, Janet. How are you? Um, I just wanted to ask a quick question. I have a, a place in my, in my area where there's, they already put in an accessible pedestrian signal. That's the good news, okay? The bad news is that only one side of it is really accessible, um, before they moved this, and, and, and now it's, you know, you got to pick your battle. So now I've decided I really want, when I called about it a while ago, they were like, no way, no how, we're removing this pole. We're not moving it. It's, um, the one side is right by the cross, the crosswalk, and you hit the button and you go across and it's, it's fine. The other side is way up by a building. It's probably maybe 10 feet away from the crosswalk. So especially in the winter, it's just, it's, it's unmanageable. Like maybe they could use it for Saturday Night Live before they fix it. But um, other than that, it's really not much good. Um, I guess I just, have, they're looking for some tips on what would be the best way to deal with this kind of thing besides you know writing to the usual suspects when i when i contacted the engineer he was like well that's where it is and i'm not moving it it's over and i know i can move it but it's just it's just getting the resolve to do it to make him move it or you want to comment um i would start by writing a letter um do, do you know who controls the intersection mary beth Maybe she's muted. So that's okay. Don't worry about it, Cindy. Um, so you, you, I would start by writing a letter to whoever controls the intersection. I would also copy any local officials, um, you know, um, elected officials, I mean. And Janet might be able to speak a little about poll placement in relation to um, crosswalks because we had a situation in Nassau County where it was 32 feet from the pole to the, to the uh, crosswalk. This is Janet, the, um, the um, requirements for pole location, well, they're actually recommendations. There should um, uh, statements in the manual on uniform traffic control devices about where the poles should be located as opposed to being where the poles shall be located. But a should carries pretty strong um, implications in uh, traffic engineering circles. And so I think um, 
stating the problems you're having in terms of being able to access the signal and get to the crossing in time uh, in, a, in a written document is it's certainly important to start with and also to recognize that the location requirements in the MUTCD are that it should be located within 10 feet of the curb. So it does allow up to 10 feet from the curb, but um, within five feet of the crosswalk line that's furthest from the center of the intersection. And I can bet you that if it's two on one pole, that's not being done. And that the um, audible signal is audible from the beginning of the crosswalk. So recognizing those, um, uh, the audible signal being, rec being audible from the beginning of the crosswalk is a requirement. And the further away it is from the beginning of the crosswalk, the louder it has to be. And the more likely it is, it's going to disturb the neighbors. So some of that can enter into possibly some advocacy um, for that signal to be installed properly. But I think mainly getting it in writing what the concerns are. And, um, you know, he can leave one pole where it is. It's just the other, he needs to install the second pole that uh, puts the other signal in the proper location. And, and in your letter, uh, that you needs can, to happen, right. you know, and be said. In your letter, you can ask for a response that includes an evaluation, a written evaluation of how the location of the pole is consistent with the requirements of the manual on uniform traffic control devices. And if you get a response and it, it doesn't appear to be consistent, then one of the things you can do is uh, the Federal Highway Administration has an obligation under Title II of, of the ADA to investigate complaints of lack of access. And each state has a Federal Highway Administration office. They're called division offices. And you can file a complaint with the local division office alleging an ADA violation and a violation under the Manual of Uniform Traffic Control Devices, which is um, written by the Federal Highway Administration. And you can file a complaint and um, we can see what happens. Um, and, you know, it's worth pursuing, although I wouldn't hold your breath because I've done several of these, but um, that's one option for an administrative complaint that's free. Next question. Can okay. I go to a different no. subject for just a minute? Sure. You yeah. just mentioned the manual on uniform traffic control devices several yes. times. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to just alert everyone on this call that right now there's a what they call a notice of proposed amendments to the MUTCD out there for comment. Comments are due by May 14th. One of the things that I'm certainly commenting about, and I hope some of you will is that they still are leaving accessible pedestrian signals as something that you do an engineering study to decide whether to install. And, you know, I'm basically in my <clears throat> comments saying an accessible pedestrian signal should, shall be installed wherever um, visual pedestrian signals are installed and the language in the METCD needs to change to say that as opposed to leaving it kind of up to engineers to think about and decide for us. Um, and that, you know, some statement just saying accessible pedestrian signals 
you know, need to be installed at every location where you have pedestrian signals. And the MUTCDs like the ADA, it would be when they make the change, they have to bring it up to standards, but still getting that in the MUTCD saying, you shall have an accessible pedestrian signal wherever pedestrian signals installed is a critical step that we have not gotten to yet. I'm so really glad encourage you said comments. That. Yeah. And I okay, really, now I'll shut up. But I just no, really wanted glad to you bring that, that up. And I'm, Thank I'm, you very much, Janet, for yeah. raising that because I knew it was open for comment, but I didn't know exactly what, you know, what was covered. So I'm doing the comments for ACB National, and um, but ideally I could I could put out a uh, a sort of uh, template uh, that people could use and uh, I've been asked to do that but I'm still writing the main comment but at any rate I will try to do that and put that out through leadership and otherwise so people can uh, write and submit comments uh, on the MUTCD I think that's an excellent point thank you for saying that Janet Hi, this is Susan Jones in Indianapolis, and I'll make it quick. I just want to say this is so, so helpful. I've not heard this discussion before. It was very helpful to hear Janet's perspective about um, the, the issue of timing, and um, we're just about to have a major overhaul on one of our main streets in my community, and this is so timely. Thank you very much. Great. Glad it's helpful. Next person. Uh, thank you, Cindy. Oh, Excellent. we don't want him crossing streets. Excellent panel, all of you. I appreciate all this information. My question is concerning floating bus stops. I don't know if anybody oh. has heard of them, but we're having an interesting time with them in Maryland. And I would like to take the next step and talk to somebody who can give us some advice on uh, raising the profile of what we need to do in Maryland to get rid of them, basically. Thoughts on floating bus stops. Yeah, I don't know anything about them. Janet, do you know anything about it? I do, and I know it's an issue and a concern, and it's being, um, um, there are floating bus stops are being um, installed in many cities. So say what um, it is. So it sounds like a flood. A floating, it sounds let like me, a flood. Let me, yeah, that's what I was going to do. Is a floating bus stop is basically um, a bus stop that is extended into the lanes and it's intended to protect bicyclists so that the bicyclists can go between the sidewalk or the curb and the bus area and not have to pass around the outside of the bus where the bus might be pulling out other stuff. So it's putting the bike lane between the sidewalk or the curb and the bus stop so that you have to cross a bike lane. Um, and the, the bus stop is not right there along the curb. It's out in the lane somewhere. Um, the issues with floating bus stops that I'm aware of are one, figuring out where the stop is, because of course you can't go trail along the curb and find the stop, or no, they may be further back from the intersection to allow more room for the buses to pull in and out and bicyclists to move. Um, the locations have been uh, variable considerably, um, sometimes mid-block. Um, so there's a need to somehow identify where the bus stop is when you're traveling along the sidewalk. 
Then there's the getting across the bike lane where uh, the bicycle advocates say, oh, well, the bicyclists will yield to pedestrians. And we all know that doesn't happen. Mm. And uh, then getting to the, you know, the bus door, the same kinds of issues when you get off the bus. Are you on a floating bus stop or are you are you on the sidewalk? Um, and if you start walking along um, turn when you get off the bus, thinking you're walking along the sidewalk, you are on an island, might end up somehow in the street. And some of the designs are uh, very poor in terms of providing um, some guidance to get you back across the street about, or across the bike lane and to the sidewalk. Um, we're also seeing a lot of uh, sidewalk level bike lanes being built and the delineation or separation between the sidewalk level bike lane and the sidewalk is uh, not um, not clear yet either. This is an area where um, there are not clear guidelines and guidance, and uh, I think we all need to be aware of it coming along and advocating and bringing up questions, um, but I can't exactly say, oh, here's the way to solve the problem. I can give you some suggestions, but we don't have the the kind of the research on that. There is a research project out there, uh, Transportation Cooperative Research Program. It's a research project I'm part of the team on to look at um, guidance surfaces from transit stations um, to bus stops, which includes some of these floating bus stops. Um, but that project's essentially been on hold because we couldn't do data collection during COVID with blind participants. So, um, you know, the, the data we'd hope to gather on installing different kinds of um, treatments and other facilities to help with some of these locations has, the data collection just hasn't started on that, you know, and we'd hope to have it kind of research finished by now. So. Um, we're delayed by COVID on that, and um, a lot of it's going to be just advocacy and saying, oof, we need to figure out answers, and we're trying to, as part of the TCRP project, gather information from different areas where they are installing such protected bike lanes and floating bus stops and other issues and trying to say, okay, so you installed this to help. Does it help? And at least get anecdotal information about what's being done and what options there might be. So I am aware of it and I'd be glad to talk to people about it, but I don't have the solutions. All right. Thanks, Pat, for your question. Next person. Yeah. Hi. So I'm um, from St. Louis, Missouri. Um, I have been trying to get my alderman to install apps and uh, I wrote him a letter. I put in all the elements that you talked about, who I am, why I need it, you know, all the benefits. Um, and he, his argument is, well, I can't afford it. I have all these other services in the ward I have to take care of, and, you know, I can't afford it. So the, the last communication I got from him is that he wrote to people in the streets department, and he's asking them, is there any ADA money out there for this? So how do you as an advocate get around the argument that they can't afford it? And I'm talking about, I'm not talking about new construction. I'm not talking about retrofitting. I'm just talking about an existing signal that needs an app. 
Okay, who wants to take that? This is Tori, I can take that. Um, it's an excellent question. And it's the answer that every city will give, <laughs> no matter <laughs> what the issue is. They claim they never have any money. And, and, and I would say there are a couple things you can do. One is they have to provide something. They can't just say no. And so you can remind them of their obligations to that. But the big thing I would actually do right now is look up how much money they just got from the American Rescue Plan. Every single city just got a huge influx of money. So if they said no before, they shouldn't say, say no now. Um, the third thing is that the FTA and the Federal Highway Administration have, uh, I, I think it's something like 30 different potential grant programs that can be used for APS. They all have different requirements and, you know, Janet can kind of talk more uh, specifically about that. But there is money available, particularly because APS is a safety feature. So they can get uh, at least 80% to 100% um reimbursed if it matches one of those programs so there's actually a lot of options um and i would just keep squeaking be the wheel that keeps squeaking so can they find send somebody do a freedom of information act request to the federal highway administration and find out how much american rescue plan money that that jurisdiction got so the American Rescue Plan is not related to the federal highway um, money. Oh, okay. This is just the big influx from the um, the Biden Fair stimulus, thing. and yeah. that's all over the news. So I'm I guarantee you your paper has said something about it, and most of the senators have issued their own little uh, what I've brought back for my state kind of summaries that list both direct aid to the city as well as they have additional aid oh, for great. things like education and things like that. That while not while those can't be used for APS, it frees up money in the general budget. So I think right now is the best time you could possibly have to say, no, you have the money. And this is Janet. One of the things that I think we get staggered by the amount of money that sometimes they say, oh, that's going to cost $60,000 to add that. And I think it's really important to recognize that um, the cost of intersection signals or signalizing an intersection in general is well over $250,000, often over a million dollars. And the, the addition of APS, particularly if they're already doing work at the intersection, is a small, small fraction of the cost of the intersection renovation or alteration. And um, uh, sometimes we get staggered by numbers. They say, oh, that's going to cost $10,000. And we say, oh, that's a lot of money. Well, in traffic engineering uh, renovations or um, changes to intersections, that's not a lot of money. And we need to not back down on the fact that you need access to the information in order to safely cross the street and not just be phased too much by that, uh, um, you know, oh, we don't have any money for this because they find money for things all the time. The other thing I'd like to just mention is I think it's really important that we use the term APS when talking about accessible pedestrian signals because of the confusion with apps and uh, apps on your smartphone and things like that. And I think it's important to say accessible pedestrian signals or APS 
rather than using apps as a term when we're talking about APS and accessible pedestrian signals. My opinion only, but that's just something that strikes me. And just to remember that accessible pedestrian signals include a vibral tactile feature because a lot of people tend to call them audible pedestrian signals and that they are not. Right, and I'll just add my quick two cents to say that when somebody says there's not enough money, that's really disingenuous. <laughs> it's disingenuous because it's a question of priorities. Um, if something is high enough priority, then there is enough money. That's the way it works. And so one of the questions you can always ask is how come, you know, a safe crossing is not a high enough priority for you? Because that's really the that's really the question when you talk about budgeting. Next question. Okay, I'm in Daytona Beach, and we have about 32 accessible pedestrians in our in our area now. And what is happening is the engineers have just gotten complaints about the noise, so they are not allowing the system to adjust its volume to the ambient noise. Is that in the traffic engineer's manual? Yeah, that's a requirement, I believe. Janet? Yes, they're required to um, adjust to the ambient sound. Um, it may, need, may be that the traffic engineers or the signal techs need some education on how to set those properly and adjust their ambient sound and set the parameters of the sound adjustment correctly. They can get with the manufacturers and work on that. Um, but they should be, I mean, they're required to respond to ambient sound. That's a shall condition in the MUTTD. And so they are required to um, modify based on the traffic and sounds around them. Um, noise complaints can be a problem, but um, it's access to the information. But there also is, uh, in my experience, signal techs think that um, louder is better and often louder is not better because it's hard to localize on a really loud sound and so sometimes it's just that they don't understand how they're supposed to be setting the APS and are trying to set them up to be heard across the street when the other part of the standard is the walk indication the locator tone are only supposed to be audible at the beginning of the crosswalk or six to 12 feet from the push button device location, not all the way across the street and is not providing that information unless you have a special extra feature called audible beaconing. But many signal techs don't understand that. So how, how would this gentleman deal with that as, as a practical matter? I think going back to the city and uh, questioning how these are being set up and asking if they could, um, I don't know which manufacturer it is, but if they could have some discussions with the manufacturer um, distributor about how to set them up properly, or if there's something I can do to help, I'll be glad to uh, have further discussions. I don't want to spend a lot of time without getting paid for it, but I'll be glad to briefly talk to a traffic engineer about what the requirements are in the MUTCD and uh, provide some uh, direction to them if need be. All right, that's great. Good, okay. Uh, real quick, I wanted to speak to something that 
uh, Lori and Tori, and I know Janet has spoken about in the past, sometimes, sometimes legal, uh, the, the legal realm is necessary. However, it is critical that people be involved as advocates to not only advocating as advisors on com advisory committees, but also by influencing pol uh, politicians, policymakers. Um, I serve on two advisory committees of our transportation planning organization, and our uh, comms mobility instructor is my alternate on the same committee. And it's amazing the influence that we have by speaking up um, and saying what we want. They, I think they're willing to listen, at least in my county, they're willing to listen. Um, I think that's helpful. I want to quickly mention that a number of years ago, the city of Daytona Beach, where I happen to live, was was approached by the State Department of Transportation asking for the city commission to vote to approve um, an intersection change that they wanted to do. Uh, we had talked with the city about that. We had people at a committee meeting talking about it. The city said we would only approve the intersection change DOT wanted if they installed four APSs at that intersection. And it was done. Great. All right. Well, thanks, Doug. Good work. Well, uh, I want to thank our awesome panelists and uh, Cindy and, and Sheila and, and Rick and on all of our listeners for a tremendous show and uh, stay tuned and we'll get some documents posted. And in the meanwhile, travel safely. Take care. Have a nice night.